Hi, I'm Jackie Mooney, editor of Women's Health Australia. Thanks for tuning in to our latest instalment of Uninterrupted. Today's guest is an entrepreneur who spent 15 years building a global jewellery empire, only to walk away from it earlier this year to pursue the next chapter in her career. From humble beginnings selling her jewellery at Bondi Markets to the height of her success running a multi-million dollar company in New York, Samantha Wills' story is both fascinating and inspiring. But don't try and call her an overnight success. Samantha is very open about the fact that the road to success was incredibly hard and that there were many gut-wrenching, cry-in-the-shower moments along the way. One of the most difficult of all was deciding to close Samantha Will's jewellery earlier this year despite its ongoing success. She's now focusing her time and energy on the Samantha Wills Foundation, which she launched in 2017 to empower women in business. She's also writing a book and working as a keynote speaker and brand ambassador, and we can't wait to get to know her more today. Well, Samantha, thank you so much for being with us at Women's Health HQ today. We know you're actually on your way, physically on your way to the airport to fly back to New York. So we so appreciate you taking the time. Of course, I saved the best for last. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) Now, you know, a lot of our audience already know you thanks to your incredible jewellery, but some of them may not guess that international businesswoman Samantha Wills is actually from Port Macquarie. Quarry, New South Wales. So what was it like growing up in regional Australia? Regional Australia, um, at the time, it was obviously very picturesque. Port Macquarie is beautiful. Um, at the time, I was in high school in the mid to late 90s. And I say this, and I'm going to sound like my mother with what's about to come out of my mouth, but the internet really wasn't around then. And so I look back on my time there, and I'm, I do a lot of speaking now in regional Australia. Um, and back then, I just didn't see, um, you know, I didn't know that the creative could be such a career and you kind of see what is around you and I saw very hard-working blue-collar people um, so while it was very very picturesque, it was quite remote um, and I think now in the work that I'm doing it's really important to me to get out to regional Australia, um, Australia. obviously there's a lot more visibility and things around it now but you know I'm very adamant on we can't be what we can't see and I really want to um, you know give that message especially to kids in, in schools and girls in high school um, about the you know the visibility of what is possible. And when you were there Mm -hmm. at school, was jewellery making something that you dreamt of even at that time or did it come later? Well, when I was 11, my mum put me into beading classes just to keep me out of um, trouble in the school holidays. And my parents always had small businesses. So my mum had a clothing boutique when I was 12 years old and she allowed me to have a spot on the register next to it. And so, you know, I was making like $50 a week or something back then as a 12-year-old making jewellery. Um, and then I'd hand make jewellery for friends in high school and, you know, sell it in the schoolyard and things like that. And then I just didn't really even see it as a as a career. So um, it wasn't until I moved to Sydney about three years. You know, I didn't go to university. I, I thought that was only for doctors and lawyers and very, very smart people, and that wasn't me. Um, and I stayed in Port Macquarie and got a job at Proud's the Jewellers in Port Central. So wow. really learnt the basis of jewellery making. Yeah, and the jeweller kind of took me under his wing and unbeknownst to me and, um, you know, what my career would hold. And I remember I was – I think I was 19 and I was um, appointed the number one salesperson by category for all of 
Australia and the area manager flew up from Sydney and she's like, Samantha, we really think you're going to have a great career in jewellery. And it turned out, you know, she had the right category, but it was going to be a different company. So um, jewellery's always had a, a thread through my life, um, but I didn't really recognise that, I think, until, you know, I launched down at Bondi Markets. And how old would you have been at that time when you were working down at Proud's The Jeweller? Uh, I was 19 and 20 and I was in there for about a year and I kind of look back on it now and I think it's really, um, you know, we, we – don't really see it until we have retrospective on something. Um, and to look back now, I'm like, that was a crash course in learning everything there is to know about jewellery, you know, for a year there. So I'm very, very grateful for that. So you started off selling your jewellery at Bondi Markets and your big break actually came during Fashion Week um, in 2004, where you actually ended the day with $17,000 worth of orders. What was that moment like? I mean, it sounds even ridiculous now. I was 22 years old by this stage. So I've been selling down at Bondi Markets and a friend had a showroom wall uh, for, at Fashion Week. He had it was a distributor for uh, multiple brands. And he said, you know, I've got this spot. It's going to be $500. And I've got this, you know, a little spot about the size of a door. And I was like, oh, $500. I think I've got $509 in my bank account at the time. So I was like, great business decision and took it hoping to make one order. And yeah, I wrote $17,000 worth of orders by the end of it. And it was just... It was very surreal. I was working a full-time retail job at the time um, and I was – I quit my real job and I put that in quotations because it's, um, you know, I thought that that's what you do. You work and this was kind of a, a hobby. And what was your real job, Just by the working way? at Surf, Dive and Ski, a retail assistant. Um, and so, yeah, I quit my job the next day. I was like, okay, I'm going to build a brand that people want to be a part of and it looks like the platform is jewellery. And um, in my 22-year-old naivety, I had promised everyone a two-week delivery, so <gasps> I had to go no. home. And, yeah, so <laughs> anyone that walked through the door, it's like, be this, pack this. So it was a lot, uh, but I got it done and that was the launch pad. And were you physically doing it in your lounge room, in your garage? Like what was physically going on at that time? It was in the dining room on the dining table, a little table from Fantastic Furniture at the time, and the kitchen was just off to the side. So, yeah, it was was just a hustle. Everything, like there was nothing. It was – failing wasn't – and everyone's like, did you think you were failing? Like I didn't even allow myself – it was so obnoxious in a way, and I I don't say that lightly. I think um, everyone's like, you were so brave to do it at at 22. And I said, no, I was just naive and obnoxious that I didn't know what was ahead. And I think, you know, a lot of people ask now, when's the right time to do it? I was like, if I had my time over, I don't know if I would be brave enough to do it again. It's almost now. good to jump in before you Absolutely. actually think about before it. Before you know what's ahead, yeah. And what do you think it was about your jewellery in particular that really resonated with people? I think at the time, you know, 2004, uh, costume jewellery and statement jewellery was really starting to make an impact in the um, marketplace. Uh, we didn't have big chain stores kind of doing jewellery. They were doing mainly apparel. Um, and it was just like right place, right time in a way. Um, I had a lot of people in the media, um, very, very supportive early on, um, someone so young kind of having a, a brand. So I got a lot of support that way. And then we were go to for celebrity dressing. So when American celebrities would come out here, um, stylists wanted co- costume jewellery. So we kind of built a celebrity following early on as well. And were there some really amazing celebs that you were like, oh my God, I can't believe this person is wearing my jewellery? I mean, all of all of them. It's <laughs> yeah. still surreal to me. Um, you know, we had Beyonce carry one of our clutches. Oh my gosh. Uh, we had Taylor Swift. We've had Katy Perry, Rihanna. It, it, 
Eva Mendes kind of put us on the map big time, um, Sex in the City. So we've had, we've been so uh, fortunate to be able to work with these incredible women that has created such a global platform for us. Yeah. And, you know, you were in your early 20s and you were hustling to, you know, make this yourself, send it all out at yourself. Was there a point where you were like, I have to get some people to help me? And, and you brought on board employees? Absolutely. So I tell this story and I'm not sure if it's like enough from the fact that I still can't go to jail for it. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> Um, so, you know, I was 22 years old and um, you want people to think that – you want people to have trust in you. So you don't want them to think they're dealing with a kid at a dining table, which which they really were. Um, and I would find that I'd go in and sell the collections to the retailers, come home, make it, and then have – you know, so you wear all hats in startup. And um, it got to a point where I – was finding that, um, you know, the good cop relationship of building that relationship in sales, then I'd see that they'd owe money on their account. So then I'd still have to be, oh, you know, hey, you owe me money to – and it just felt like it was kind of a deterrent to the relationship. So I was like, I just need someone who can do accounts receivable. And I was like, I don't have enough money to pay someone. I don't even know how to employ someone. I'm just going to make someone up. So I made up this fake email. My middle name's Renee. So I made up this, you know, I gave Renee this email address. And so I, you know, me, Samantha emailed and introduced Renee to everyone. And then Renee would start emailing people like one o'clock in the morning. And then people would be like, oh, that Renee, she's diligent, isn't she? I was like, she's a very hard worker. She's great, <laughs> she's Renee. A great employee. <laughs> she was great. And so then, you know, as I went along and then it just kind of became this life of its own. And then I thought, you know, what is nothing, you know, I named the company very modestly after myself, Samantha Wills. I was like, you know what is more, you know, what is worse, sorry, than calling the name after yourself? I was like, it's Samantha Wills telling the media how great Samantha Wills is. But I was like, you know who can do it without looking like a total asshole? I was like, Renee. So, <laughs> She's a woman of many talents. So I promoted Renee and so she was working in accounts receivable and marketing and it was – so to answer your question, <laughs> I still I don't know if this is illegal or not. I not say that at all. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, Renee was with me for a lot of years and um, I say I say now she's on maternity leave and she hasn't come back but she's doing all right for she's herself. She's having a very happy time. <laughs> she's doing well. So to answer your question, I um, had – Renee for a while and then I had real Renee's um but yeah it was it was hard in those early days as you do you wear all hats and it's very overwhelming you you know you kind of do you bring someone on then their livelihood is yours it's it's a very overwhelming time and um you went from being eighty thousand dollars in debt at the age of 24 to pulling in your first million at 26 how did it feel to achieve that kind of success um it felt uh, this is going to sound wrong. It felt ambivalent. I think that for me, the success was nothing to do with money. I think, you know, I didn't even, I had visibility and I had access obviously to the bank accounts, but by this stage, I had a business partner. Um, and so I got myself into $80,000 debt and really needed to find someone to run. I knew how to build a brand, but at 22, did not know how to run a business and needed someone to build the infrastructure of the business to meet the brand profile and met my business partner. And I didn't want a cent from him. I just wanted his business mind in my business. And and convinced him. It took me a long time to to convince him to come on board. But when he did, uh, he turned the debt around in six months and um, really supported me from a as a brand and creative director to to build that. So um, 
sorry, I don't even know if that answers the question. No, it really does. It really does. (laughs) But um, yeah, so it it was kind of building that way to really support both sides of, you know, it's all great to have this brand that's going through the roof, but we didn't have the structure behind it. So, But that way you could then have that room to focus on creativity. Absolutely. And and the two of us, and I always wanted it to be very commercial from the start. I think on the ends, the spectrum of creatives, there's like the true artist who, you know, will do anything for their craft and, you know, it's, it's, but I wanted a, a, I wanted a platform that reached a lot of people. Uh, so, sorry, to answer your question, when my business partner came in, he he managed the business side of things and I had access to the P&L and, and the accounts and things. But he was like, oh, you know, we turned over X this and, you know, we profited a million. And, and I was like, okay, that's great. So anyway, back to like the next brand story kind of thing. And that is really, really what inspired me. So, yeah. And I, I read um, that a reporter once referred to you as an overnight success. And what I love is that you've made it really clear that it took you more than a decade um, to kind of get to where you were and that there was many obstacles along the way. Um, what was the hardest challenge that you faced? Look, I think there's people, I think there's an assumption that once you get to a certain perceived level of success, all your problems go away. I often say to young entrepreneurs and young in the journey, not not young in age, um, the, the problems increase as other things increase. So the problems don't go away. You just have to kind of style shift to, to what is happening. Um, and look, there's been many big issues over the years at different stages. I think the most consistent one probably is two things. Um, if you're manufacturing, I think, um, you know, you might come up with an idea with jewellery, for example, and kind of say, oh, you know, we wanted to put a leather piece in this. But when you're producing offshore, to do leather is a whole new production line of, you know, a new production house and trying to infiltrate that. So maintaining that um, quality, I think, and, you know, consistency around product is an ongoing challenge. Um, and the other one is people. I think you're only as good as the people around you. And as you grow, you know, you've got a lot of souls in that building and um, trying to manage that and make sure everyone is independently happy and working to the greater good of, of what we're trying to achieve as a brand. Um, and that, as with all businesses, is an ongoing. Um, you just got to keep your eye on that. So they're probably the two main consistent ones, but there is problems every every step of the way. And I, I hope that we're talking about them more. And, um, you know, you built a very successful business. Um, a lot of our audience have, you know, a side hustle and they want to turn that into their full-time job and they're not quite sure how to go about that. So, what would be your advice to those women, a few things you learn? I think there's two parts that I'm reading a lot around this at the moment where people have got a creative outlet, which is their hobby, and they say they're making, a, say, a dress, for example, and they work to a wedding and someone's like, oh, where did you get it? And they say, oh, I made it. And they say, you should sell that. And it's almost this it's like if you've got this talent, you should be monetizing it. And I think for so long, you know, that creative outlet is the hobby and the um, the release in a way. So one, you don't always have to monetize it. If it's something a release for you, then you don't feel that there's a pressure that you have to turn it into a business, firstly. Um, secondly, if you do want to turn it into a business, there's no right time to, you know, quit the real job and kind of pursue that dream. Um I like to, you know, when I first started, I actually started like a party plan by organically. So I was making jewelry on the dining table. Friends would come over and be like, oh, can I buy this? I was like, oh, sure. And they're like, can I bring friends over? I was like, no worries. And then like, can you bring this to my house? And I'll invite 10 friends over. And this real organic kind of party plan style of jewelry selling started. Um, but you know, it's not like I quit my job one day and then launch a business the next day. So my uh, personal advice would be start to do what you want to do in, you know, get up an hour earlier or go to bed an hour later and do something. Like there's going to be no great time to just take the plunge and dive into it. 
And so I guess it's knowing that difference between if it is a hobby for you and if it is a business and, and really recognising that difference and then taking the steps if it is a business to give yourself that structure to succeed. Absolutely. And and that's testing the waters early on, you know, like it might kill the creative vibe for you if you're like, oh, I have to make this by a certain price to get a certain GP or do gross profit on it. And um, so I think sitting and all of this and I'm working a lot around this at the moment, it all goes back to your intuition. Don't do something because someone's like, everyone's telling you you should monetize it. Um, it has to be completely of your passion. And fast forward to very recently, actually, um, after, you know, all the success, having built this incredible brand, um, you actually decided to walk away from that, which must have been a very brave thing to do. What led to that decision for you? Um, it's a few things. Um, it was the, the decision, the time that I made the decision to close the business was the very first time I ever thought about it. And I've never strayed from knowing that was the right decision. But, um, you know, 15 years in, I started, you know, when I was so young and I'm based in New York now. So I, for the last eight years, have done six weeks, New York, 10 days, Sydney consistently. Uh, in 2017, I realized that I was about to get on my hundredth flight between those two airports, um, not including the China and European trips in between. And when I did that hundredth flight, I was like, wow, this is a lot of time without your feet on the ground, metaphorically and um, physically. And I just didn't want to do the travel anymore. It was really starting to wear on me. Um, I still loved the creative. And I actually sat down and wrote a resignation letter to my business partner. Essentially, I was writing it to myself, but for formality, I, I structured it as if I was writing it to him. And he was he very understanding. And he, um, you know, we put this place in a uh, planning place together where we'd put appoint a new creative director and a new head of design. Um, and the entire thing was so I didn't have to be on a plane as much. And as with all, you know, universal guidance, it was just all roadblocked. Like whatever we tried just didn't, just didn't click. Um, so by 2018, we'd just signed with QVC, which is the home shopping network in the States, which was a huge, huge deal, uh, for us. And so I was on air with them. And it was the peak of our commercial success. And I just didn't, just knew it was time to to look at something else. And I actually went up to a meditation retreat just to kind of sit, just find a way to quieten my mind so I could hear what my heart was trying to say. And it was up at this place in upstate New York and it's kind of a campus that um, they do holistic teachings and yoga and all these things. And so I was trying to learn this meditation and um, my business partner and I send each other emails three times a year that are completely observational. So nothing to do with numbers or the P&L. And he said, hey, I know you're upstate. Do you want me to send this to you while you're up there? I was like, yeah, I'm just... So essentially I was up there trying to work out, should I move back to Australia? What's best for the brand? Like how am I... What is best for the brand? And so he sent me an email and it was after dinner and I opened it and he's, the title of the email was the business is at a crossroads. And he was kind of saying, whatever you want to do, I will support. Just let me know what you want to do. And then I opened it and I looked up and I was standing at an actual physical crossroads. One path went around the campus and one went through like a vegetable garden. And I just put my hand on my heart and I was like, it's time to close. And I just heard it and it was so calm. And I was like, okay, it's time, it's time to close. And it wasn't, it's the biggest decision I've ever made, but it is definitely the calmest decision I've ever wow, made. Wow, that is an amazing. So it really just instantly spoke to you. You just felt that was right. Instantly. And I woke up the next morning. I didn't tell a soul for two weeks. And I woke up and I said to myself, you don't have a company anymore. How does it feel? And I really kind of implemented the decision just to see how it sat. And I didn't ask myself what I thought about it. I didn't ask myself logistic logistically if it makes sense. I was like, how do you feel about it? I was like, I feel this is the right decision. 
and um, so we implemented what we were doing and, yeah, uh, told the team probably three weeks later and then announced it publicly after that. And it's quite interesting to me that, you know, in recent times there's been, you know, a, a handful of quite well-known women, yourself being one of them, you know, Sarah Wilson, mm-hmm. Lisa Messenger, yes. all making these very big decisions about extremely successful empires that they've built and, you know, walking away to say, look, this is right for me, this no longer serves me and I'm doing this for this reason, which I actually think is quite amazing and empowering and such an important message. Did you find, obviously, you were at peace, but how were other people's reactions? Could they not believe you were doing this? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. So I think the day we actually turned the site off and and closed, which was January 11th um, this year, and everyone's like, how do you feel? Like, what's And they were kind of waiting for this big reaction from me. I said, oh, I think the big reaction from me was having to come back and tell the team because it didn't just impact me. It impacted a lot of people. And we wanted to make sure we were doing right by them and and supporting them into the next phase of their career. Um, but I think that, you know, and the, the, the women, the incredible women that you've just listed, it's very much what I've learned from this process is okay for something to end. I think for some reason we have in our mind, we have to run something till it, till it's death kind of thing. And I really wanted to take a leaf out of the Seinfeld book and kind of go out while we're on a high and to honor the legacy of that and to honor the stories that we've told as a brand, the things we've stood for, the women who have worked and men who have worked on it over the years. And it's hundreds of people have touched this brand. And I think to honor it, um, that way, but I think there was a level of shock with our community. Um, definitely. And it's not like we're like, Oh, Hey guys, we're closing tomorrow. We wanted to celebrate the brand. So we chose six months to, to do final collection and limited edition things to really celebrate it for people. But I think there was an element of shock for sure. But it's interesting you saying that just as we're talking. It reminded me of, you know, a boss I had many years ago who I greatly respect and was a great mentor to me. She once said, leave it while you love it. Right. Like don't stay too long at the party. It's always great to go once you're still loving it. Right. And I think, you know, I could design jewelry in my side, designed 12,000 pieces in my career. Like that wasn't the issue. The issue to me was I'm like, we've said everything as a brand that I've wanted us to say. And the night that I got the email and made the decision um, at those crossroads, I went into the bookstore on campus and was reading Elizabeth Gilbert's uh, Big Magic. And it talks about cre- um, coming overcoming fear of creative. And I turned the page and I was like, okay, this is really speaking to me. I read it from cover to cover and I turned the page and she did an interview with singer-songwriter Tom Waits. And in his quote was, you know, as um, artists and as songwriters, uh, we take ourselves so seriously, but all we're really doing is making jewellery for the inside of people's minds. And I was like, oh, shit, that's for me. Like, I, I get it. I'm meant, I'm meant to be writing. So it's still, you know, I wanted to kind of take that and make jewellery for the inside of people's minds and do more work on the Samantha Wills Foundation and communicate in the stories that I've accumulated over the last 15 years. So it was it's still jewellery, but yeah, for the inside. I love that. I love that. And I was going to actually ask you next, you know, what are you up to now? You know, since I'm unemployed, yeah. <laughs> this is amazing. Like, obviously, you've got the foundation and you yes. mentioned writing. Is that something that you're doing regularly? Yeah. So um, I worked a few years ago for Optus and I fronted a camp, myself and Mark Wahlberg, of all people, fronted the, a small business campaign for them. And at the time, I wanted to, uh, it was leading up to a TVC billboard and, and print launch, and we couldn't talk about it till it launched, but I wanted to, in the lead up to it, um, do uh, Instagram post a day, kind of like mini chapters for every year I'd been in business. So I had 12 days leading up to it. And from that, I got three publishing houses contacting me for to offer me to write a, a book with them. I was like, oh, no, I'm a jewelry designer. This is in 2016. I was like, I'm a jewelry designer. Like, no, that's, I, no, no, no. And I declined them all. And I think in this process of 
closing the brand and really being able to step back with perspective. You know, you don't get offered three book deals and not sit down and have to write a book. Like there's things in life that I think are presented and sometimes we just get so busy focusing on this singular pinhole of success or failure to be able to stand back and have perspective and really I describe it as aligning our external awareness and what's being presented around us with our internal intuition and I think that's when I got the email about the crossroads and standing at the crossroads and I was like, okay, I get it. Now there's, I truly believe there's no such thing as a coincidence and if we really were able to sit in silence and, and look around at what's being presented, it took me a long time to learn that <laughs> but um you know so I, I when I read that quote from Tom Waits and I, looked back, I was like okay you got three book offers like maybe this is you're doing a lot of writing and I was like yeah okay I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book so I'm writing a book um it's a business memoir and um as with most obviously it'll profile the, the milestones of the business and what it takes from Bondi markets to, to a global stage but it really parallels what it takes professionally both from myself and an incredible team of people to achieve that um, and also what it, the sacrifices personally that it took so I'm going to parallel the two of those. And um, when is it due out? That's a great question. <laughs> Are you still in the writing um, I'm process? I'm in the writing process. It'll be probably early to mid next year but yeah uh, uh, the first half of next year. Yeah. And um, obviously you're sharing things you've learned through your writing. I know recently as well, speaking has become an increasingly big part of your world. How has that been and what is really the message that you're wanting to share through speaking? Uh, there's a few messages. I think, you know, over the last 12 years or so of my 15-year career, I've been talking a lot about brand building. So I'm still talking a lot about um, business and brand building and things I've learned in business over the last 15 years. And kind of like the book, I'm paralleling it against things along that timeline that um, might not have been seen publicly. And I think um, the message, it, it, it differs, but I think at the end of the day, it's kind of the transparency and this authenticity of um, having these conversations. And, you know, as I said, in a day and age of Instagram, we're just so flooded with just like the the high notes. I'm like, no, we need to be talking about how we got to that and what we learned from our time in the darkness and um, the, the surrender of, you know, that it's not always a good time and that's okay. And I think, you know, bringing those things to light because everyone's experiencing it. So, yeah, I want to use my platform for that. And are there some dark times in particular that have really – taught you some things? I think all the dark times teach us things. I, I often speak in a, uh, just come off a speaking tour actually, and one of the parts I talk about is grief. So I think that you know, my perspective is the universe only gives us three answers. Yes, not right now, or I have something better in store for you. Um, and if we talk about that external awareness, I believe they're presented in the forms of like a green light. So it's like, you're on the right path. Like it's like flow state, synchronicity, things start to fall into place. Um, there's the roadblock kind of guidance, which is, you know, feel like all the doors might be shut. you trying whatever you try. Like when I talked about I wanted to resign, but nothing, you know, allowed me to take a board position that needed me in the business. So that's kind of frustrating. It comes into terms of shut doors and you feel like it's just a frustrating time. The third one, which is the main one, and it's the one that I think we all stay away from at any cost and it's it's grief and trauma. And I think, you know, it's like the hot pan, like you just kind of want to, oh, no, it hurts. I'm going to back away from it. But it's truly the not only guidance in, in grief and trauma, but it's very much you getting equipped with these lessons and learnings for what is next on on your path. For me, I think one of the bigger ones was taking a – was, um, you know, I'd step outside of my role as a jewelry designer. I was working with other brands and doing a lot of speaking and things. And, um, and I explained it like a Jenga tower. I'm like, it was kind of all the things were holding the other things up. And, um, it was great. But the thing with the Jenga tower is once you move one critical piece, the whole thing falls down. And at the time I was in a relationship 
and um, I found out that he was cheating on me. And it was just, um, I say blindsiding, but I guess if you look back, there probably were things that you miss at the time. But for me, I just dropped my bundle. Like I couldn't function. I couldn't talk. I just would like crawl into bed. My friends would come over and pull me out long enough to change my sheets and I'd just crawl straight back in. And I think personally for me, it was a really dark time. I had a lot of commitments. So um, I kind of described the darkness in that time though, as you know, when you're little and you jump into the deep end of the pool and you try and touch the bottom, hold your breath and touch the bottom. And I kind of at this time knew that I was hovering around the, the middle of the darkness. And I knew that because I was too afraid of what the actual core of like what the bottom of that swimming pool held. And that's the truth. Because I turned to him, I said, please don't leave me. And so, you know, publicly and professionally, I campaigned so hard for women's empowerment and I was fierce about it and everything that I projected professionally. But the core of empowerment is self-worth. And along the way, somewhere I had lost my own. And so I think, you know, I was put into that darkness to for what was coming up on my path. And that was to launch the Samantha Wills Foundation, which I had the idea literally on the floor of a bathroom, like trying to breathe one morning. And it was, you know, I had to align my self-worth publicly and professionally. And that's truly what I believed, but I needed to align my personal self-worth with that. And that was why I was in, in that darkness. And it was going to loom until I learned that lesson. And it took me longer than it should have because I just wouldn't touch the bottom of it. So it's, um, it's the, the grief and those times that we're so quickly to try and get out of and not deal with and kind of push to the side that I believe, and it doesn't make it any easier, but it's, we've got to touch the bottom of it to sit in our own truth, to be able to be like, okay, and it takes time. And then it's, you know, you, you're equipped with the lessons to move on to the next thing. And, and that's where we grow in the discomfort. No, it's so true. And I've, you know, talked about this a lot with people recently. I think it's a real theme and you need to learn it. As you say, don't avoid the discomfort. You've got to sit in it. You've got to learn from it. Like there's no other way. Don't run away from it. Right. And I think that we're kind of, I feel like we're always meant to be happy and everything's meant to be great. I'm like, if we can accept that sometimes it's going to be shit and it's going to hurt, there's almost like a release and doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Like it's like, but just that realization to let it it'll pass but it might take a while but the more we resist it the longer it's going to hang around and you know I'm sure there's a lot of people and a lot of women in particular who relate to your story in that way what were really the practical things if you're in that dark time and you know you went from being please don't leave me to aligning your self-worth and obviously making the decision eventually to walk away what were the practical things that really helped you in that dark time to move ahead um, definitely surrounding myself with my core, I call them A-orbit people, with like your five people. That, and this was, a, so I had to fly back to Australia and I shot a, a campaign and two magazine covers three weeks after that. Um, and I, I talk about this a, a lot because practically I had, I had to honor these commitments. So I got my shit together somehow and got back here and, you know, staying in hotels every night. And I would set my alarm for 90 minutes before I actually had to be awake because I knew I had 90 minutes to fall apart. So it's like, okay, whether that's sitting on the floor of the shower and or like just trying to breathe on a, on a bathroom floor, I would show up on set and I just wanted to do the best job I could for the, the client. And really some days you can do more than others. And I think that trying realizing that is a practical way to just kind of you know, the word self-care is so overused and it's like, what does that actually mean? I think this is a way of self-care, just realising that you can't be everything to everyone. Uh, if I needed to fall on 
a part on set, I'd politely excuse myself and go and like ball my face off in the bathroom, come back and apologize profusely to the makeup artist and, and keep going. But it's okay to drop your bundle sometimes. And it, we're fragile as human beings. We're resilient, but we are really fragile. So um, being honest with the people around you and accepting help, I think is a really big one, but it's, it's a hard one. And what do you think would be your advice to other women who might be very much at a crossroads in their life, whether it's professional, business, anything? How can they have the courage to, you know, really listen to what's right for them and, and make that leap? I think um, intuition is such a key thing. Our body is always telling us, you know, when you're excited and you, you know you're excited in your tummy or, you know, when you kind of go into flight or flight mode, it's a, it's a survival thing. So our body knows we're just so busy overstimulating it with like social media and coffee and running and being late and da, 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 da. So if you can find a way to find that stillness and I say, you know, everyone's like, oh, you have to meditate. It's really hard. I'm like, no, it doesn't have to be meditation. It could be you might get it in a spin class or you might get it when you're painting or whatever allows you to go into a, uh, a flow state in a way that just allows that clearance in your mind. Um, I think is, is one thing because you know, in your, in your gut, the answer, you always know the answer. And I read this quote the other day um, by Rick Rubens and he said, if you have a coin and you flip it, you're at a crossroads, you flip it. As soon as it leaves your hand, what ins go inside? Like what instantly do you hope is the answer? Because that's probably the answer. Um, and I think the other thing too is there, there is no Freudian slip. It's very much, um, we say things, our subconscious, you know, says things. And I think being aware of when we say, oh, I think this, or I think I should do this, or I should, I think, I think, I think, versus I feel. And I think there's a really big mm. difference if you ask yourself, how do you feel about it? Like I, a gentleman stood up, I was talking for American Express a little while ago, and he said, I don't understand your decision to to close the business. It logically makes no sense. Um, why wouldn't you X, Y, and Z? Like logically, there's no sense to what you're doing. And I said, you're right. So like there is no logical it's explanation. Not about it's, yeah, I said, I can't explain it to it. It's an intuitive. I just know. And that's the definition of intuition where you don't have to logic you can't logically explain something so I think um going going inside and finding a way to do that and I think the biggest thing is notice in your mind how you use the words think versus feel so do you think in general all this men and women we need to do that more Absolutely. I think, you know, life is so busy and we – I always for so long in that imposter syndrome, um, I assumed everyone else knew better than me. I assumed if someone worked at a PR person, they knew – but PR firm, they knew more about P- – like, so I think we we know in ourselves we just kind of give this power away often, um, but we've got to bring it back in. And I think the biggest – and if you don't trust that entirely, look around and see what is being presented. There's the, Next time you say, oh, that's a coincidence or wasn't it lucky that – or, what you know, what are the chances – Oftentimes that like, is no. That was meant to be. That was meant to be, and then align it with what what is happening in your life right now. And I think a lot of things start to look a bit different. One of the things you have spoken about is you know something that happened to you on the street in New York in in two thousand and seventeen. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of like keeping that private, you actually spoke about it um, very openly. Why do you you know tell us a little bit about that? And also, why do you think it's important for women to speak out when something isn't right? Yeah. So um, what you're referring to is I was uh, groped by a stranger on on the street and in a on a crowded street in New York, and I. I spoke about it, but I didn't speak about it for a long time. And I think when the Taylor Swift um, case came out where she was countersuing a, a Denver DJ for groping her, I was like, wow, that's really, really brave to come out because the stereotype of um, someone speaking out about it, we just the media is so accustomed to being like, oh, well, what was she wearing or what? Just these questions that even the, the – 
to take it in a different way, the question is like X amount of women were raped by men, you know, this year and rather than being like X amount of men raped women. So it's just the, the thought process and the words are so powerful. Um, and I think it's the more people that can talk about it, the more we have to normalize this like abhorrent culture that we have found ourselves in that we just accept. And I think, you know, even growing up as a kid in the eighties and nineties and God bless you, my dad would, you know, at a barbecue, but oh no, that's a woman's job. And he didn't, there was no malice behind it, but I just take that on board as a, you know, an eight year old and be like, okay, well, that's a woman's job. And so it's about kind of cutting these ties that we're so ingrained in our psyche that we've just carried with us and retraining how we associate with them. And so when uh, Taylor spoke out about it, I was like, okay, I've, I've got a similar story, but I sat on the, the truth of it for so long because I, didn't, I, was, I was scared. So um, I think it's important, you know, I, I published it because I just wanted to be like, you don't have to walk down the street and be groped or you don't have to be catcalled or you don't have to feel getting from point A to point B shouldn't be a, a mission. Um, and we just have to start changing and holding people accountable. And did you find when you were brave enough to speak out about that eventually, you know, did a lot of women, um, you know, provide you with feedback or say thank you, that really helped me? Was there a reaction um, to that? There was in a great way but also in a heartbreaking way. I would receive texts that still break my heart. Like one woman was like I was raped by my grade three teacher or another woman was, you know, just the, the stories that are just – break my heart to a point when she's like, I just have carried, I've carried the guilt of it. And you're just like, how is that? It's just that we're in a time in history that I feel like our generation too is kind of carrying this change. So you kind of got this history up until now that is ingrained in us. And, um, and it is, it, it does feel like guilt or it feels like this association that we're so conditioned to associate things with. Um, but yeah, it, it was an incredible outpouring of one of women saying thank you, but of women also sharing their stories and often like DMing me and I'm a, I'm a stranger to them, but they would DM me on Instagram and, and share their story. And they're like, you're very the first. personal thing. It is, it is. And they're like, you're the first person I've ever told. And wow. I'm like, oh my God, like and I'm holding my heart when I say this because it's a, it's a huge thing. And just the fact that people have had to carry these things for so long and feel guilt about it, it's not a Okay. But yeah, it's an incredible thing that you've done that, you know, somebody can feel that they can open up to you and unburden themselves like that. I think that's why it's important we all have these conversations so that people aren't, you know, carrying these things. Because as you say, it's about taking that power back for yourself as a woman. Definitely. And being unapologetic about it, I think for so long, you know, I'd, I'd often start questions like, oh, I'm so sorry, or like this, um, passiveness that I didn't even realize I was doing uh, and I think yeah, as you said it does it goes back to these conversations and and telling these stories because everyone's got similar stories um and we're all publishers in this day and age if you're listening to this you're probably listening on an iPhone you've probably got an Instagram feed we're all publishers we all have a voice and we we have to have an opinion at, at this point in history and I think it is a really important time in history like I I think there is a very important movement happening around the world you know female empowerment is really rising in so many areas from sport to, you know, business, women's rights. All of these things seem to be coinciding, which I think is amazing. Um, you know, when women come together, you know, many things can happen. Are there some women in your life that have been incredible role models or mentors to you? Yeah. Um, the term mentor, I think, is is quite a traditional term. I think everyone can be a mentor in a way. And even realizing about someone in business, especially like that you don't like the practice of what they do is just as important as um, like, you know, following people that you do like their practice. Um, I often reference, and she's a friend of mine, Celeste Barber, and I know her 
professionally, what she does professionally, and I know her as a personal person. I'm just like, she's just a good freaking human being. Like, what she's doing, and she hates being called brave because she's like, this is just normal. Like, let's not glamorize making it, you know, this brave hero statement about this is what women, you know, look like. And I just think I have such admiration for what she is doing and and what she stands for and her core values shine through. Like she's the way that she took on Victoria's secret. Um, just, she's just such a great person to not just have conversations, but take action on things. And that's something that I aspire to do. You know, we've talked about so many things today. If you had to nominate something, what do you think has been the biggest challenge, but also the biggest gift of the last few years? Oh, that's a hard one. Uh, the biggest challenge, as I said, I think it's it's continually evolving. I think um, the biggest gift definitely is being able to step at this time with that accumulated amount of knowledge into my own intuition. And it took me a long time to, and I'm still working on that, but to stand into my own power definitely feels like a gift now. And I'm making a lot more decisions based on intuition and clarity. Um, but it's been a journey and I think the, the takeaway from it is the surrender. It is like, it doesn't mean giving up. Surrender does not mean giving up. It means kind of letting, not living in this fight or flight mode the entire time. And I think that has been the gift at this point in my career. And, um, where do you see yourself in five years or do you not? No, yet you're still figuring that I out. I really don't know yet. No, I, and I've never looked too far ahead to be honest. Everyone's like, "What? How do you do goal setting?" I was like, "I never really have. I give everything that I'm working in, a, you know, a thousand percent." And I'm um, five years. I hope I'm still writing, and I hope I've accumulated more stories to tell. Um, and I hope that we see ourselves in a time where we're not, you know, celebrating the first woman. This I'm like that. Just it's just getting boring. Like let's like move it along in in action. So I hope that I'm celebrating. Um, more equality in five years. And if you could go back and and give 16-year-old Samantha some advice, um, what advice would you give her? She wouldn't listen anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think to... Look, look, look around rather than just like looking straight ahead and kind of jumping onto that next thing. Take the time to look around and the answers being presented to you. And apart from speaking and writing, you know, what's up next for you? I, I honestly, I wish I had a more romantic answer because everyone is asking me this question. I don't actually know. I think uh, it will start to present itself. As I said, when, when you're doing what you're meant to be doing in life, there are a lot of green lights and I'm starting to see that momentum now. But I know that uh, right now for the next few months, I've got to bunker down and get this book done. Yep. So you'll be in lockdown. I'm in lockdown. In yeah. Contact me via like coconut or something. <laughs> so do you think you're going to be there for a little while in New York? I think so. I mean, I've, I'm on my ninth year there now. Um, you know, my adopted kind of family is there. There's a lot of Aussies over there. Um, so yeah, that is home for now, but we'll see. Well, Samantha, it has been such a pleasure um, getting to know you today and meeting you today. You know, I've been an admirer for a very long time and, you know, I think your message resonates with a lot of women. So we really thank you for just opening up and giving so much of yourself today. I know I've personally got a lot out of it. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back with our next episode very soon. In the meantime, got someone you'd love to hear from on our podcast? Then don't hold back. Get in touch with us and let us know who they are via the Women's Health website. If you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, you can find support at 1800respect.org.au or call 1800-737-732 as well as beyondblue.org.au 
or call 1300 22 4636.